Chapter 4 The First Settler on the Holy Mountain The first writing by St. Gregory Palamas was, quote, on the miraculous and angelic life of our holy and God-bearing father Peter, who lived the ascetic life on the holy mountain of Athos. Quote. This writing is noteworthy because on the one hand it contains a number of facts about the holy mountain and its monastic government, and on the other hand because it expresses St. Gregory's theology of the monastic and ascetic life. We shall study this writing by St. Gregory because it has a direct bearing on the subject with which we are dealing. We must note that it will not be a complete analysis of this work of his, but that we are going to emphasize chiefly the points which interest us in showing the way of the ascetic life on Athos, as St. Peter the Athenite lived it, as St. Gregory Palamas lived it, and as it is also pursued and lived today by a small number of ascetic monks living on the holy mountain. The life of St. Peter the Athenite, which has been preserved, was written at the end of the 10th century by Nicolaus the Athenite. St. Gregory Palamas makes use of this life, but adds also his own contribution to the theological framework. 1. The reason for writing about St. Peter the Athenite. It is essential for our subject that we look into St. Gregory's reason for writing the life of St. Peter the Athenite. This is very important because it will be seen that it was written after a revelation of God and also a great spiritual experience which St. Gregory had. This shows that the writing of lives of saints is not the fruit of an intellectual occupation but of spiritual experience. St. Philotheus, biographer of St. Gregory Palamas, records how St. Gregory began writing. After great asceticism and a visit from God, the saint was outside the monastery of the great Lavra in a frontisterion or hezekasterion, a school of Hezekiah. When two hours had passed and he was already in the third, the hour when he practiced noetic stillness and prayer, he had a sense of subtle sleep and came to the vision of God, Theoria. He thought that he was holding a vessel full of milk, which suddenly began to pour out. Then it seemed to him that the milk was suddenly changed to a superb and sweet-smelling wine, which was pouring endlessly over his clothes and hands, sprinkling and filling them with fragrance. Then there came an apparition of a man full of light who told him that he should share this divine beverage with others as well and not let it pour out in vain, for it was a gift of God, which would not cease to well up and be imparted abundantly. St. Gregory then pleaded inability to distribute this divine beverage, saying also that there did not exist men who would worthily seek such teachings. The apparition answered that he should do his duty and leave it to the Lord Christ to search for men. After this brief conversation and that heavenly and divine vision, the divine man departed, and Gregory, having shaken off his subtle sleep, sat there all night and the greater part of the day, all illuminated by divine light. St. Philotheus informs us that St. Gregory himself reported this vision to the priest Dorotheus, later Metropolitan of Thessaloniki, as he was convinced that the vision wanted to tell him to change his words, quote, from the ethical and simple to the dogmatic and lofty. And of course, the divine Gregory began to compose different writings. 
This has great significance for what will be said further on, immediately after that vision which he took as coming from God about presenting the Hesychistic life. The divine Gregory, guided by those revelations and by the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, and having the gift of words, now he began to write prose wonderfully. The first writing is one about the life and ways of St. Peter the Athenite, which we shall examine here. St. Philotheus Kokinos writes characteristically, quote, And first he composed the writing about the Divine Father Peter. This fruit is our very own, bearing the address of Holy Athos and his great and angelic sojourn in life here, end quote. The second writing is the one about the feast of the presentation of the Theotokos in which he comments on the deification of the Theotokos by grace. Thus the writing of this and other works is a result of God's favor. St. Gregory began to write after receiving special information and a revelation from God. And that is why his words have great theological penetration and express the whole ascetic experience of the Church. 2. The Holy Mountain and its Value In all of St. Gregory's work, the significance of the Holy Mountain stands out. It is praised with wonderful ornamental names, and the ascetic life lived by St. Peter the Athenite and his contemporary monks is extolled. First, we must present the ornamental names used to refer to the Holy Mountain. It is called famous, quote, this famous Athos. It is entitled, quote, Worthy Fatherland, the Tabernacle of Heavenly Beings. Referring to St. Peter's settling on the Holy Mountain, he writes, quote, And from there he flew up toward heaven. I mean that famous and revered place, the home of the virtues, the abode of all that is beautiful, the antitype of the heavenly beings, the tabernacle not made with hands, that mountain free of all pollution and above any impure passion which bears the name of holiness, end quote. Mount Athos is a name of holiness, for it is a venerable place and a home of the virtues, free of every infection and above all passion. Naturally, this is understood from the point of view that the dwellers on Athos are men of virtue and goodness, and as a result, they make the place itself holy. Athos is also called Divine Mountain by St. Gregory Palamas. Information was given by the Theotokos that it will be called Holy. So Athos was called Holy Mountain by the Mother of God herself, who appeared to St. Peter the Athenite and showed him the place of her own land. For this reason, ever since then, it has been called the Garden of the Panagia, as we shall see in the course of this analysis. The monks who live there are called Athenites and Hagiorites, and they regard it as their native land. St. Peter receives his title from this mountain, but at the same time St. Gregory, speaking to the other monks, characterizes St. Peter as a native of our land. In the life written by St. Gregory Palamas, the land where St. Peter was born is not mentioned, but it is said plainly that time did very well when it kept silence about his earthly fatherland. The Holy Mountain is a fitting fatherland, because there he sprang up and grew and brought forth abundant fruit. Obviously, this refers to St. Peter's spiritual rebirth. In the godly life that he was born on Manathos, 
There he matured to spiritual manhood. There he conquered the devil and all his wiles. There he attained deification. If a person who stays three years in Athens, says St. Gregory, regards that as his home, this should apply so much the more to St. Peter, who lived more than 50 years on Manathos and struggled so hard. Likewise, St. Gregory says that if a person regards as his native land the place where he succeeds, it should be much more the case with St. Peter, because it was on the holy mountain that he met with God and was able to see him with the eyes of his soul, or rather, where he surpassed human nature and became truly divine. Moreover, St. Peter relinquished the land of his birth and came to this mountain, which prepares us for the fatherland above. So the holy mountain became his fatherland, for he lived there 53 years in hard ascesis and ascetic struggle. He sur surpassed biological life, overcame all that is human, lived in communion with God, and this place became a reason for his, his inheriting the heavenly fatherland, the kingdom of heaven. He was rightly called the Athenite. From St. Gregory's analysis, it appears that the term Athenite and Hagiorite belongs to those who dwell there and practice the angelic way of life. Here we can say that it is not so much the place of residence as the way of life. The Hagiorite has an ethos which indeed does not differ from the Orthodox ethos, but is the ethos of the Orthodox Church. It is the bearer of a tradition which constitutes communion with God, the relationship and communion of man with God. The Holy Mountain is usually said to be a place where new beings are not born, but they only die. However, from St. Gregory's comments here, it appears that even on the mountain of holy name, men are born, if we regard real birth to be the transformation of a man the transcending of biological life and death, and the experience of the life of the age to come. But even if we consider that the day of a saint's falling asleep is a day of birth, we can still say that the holy mountain is a place of the birth of men, the real men, and therefore they are rightly called by its name. 3. The Ascetic Life of St. Peter we shall not dwell very much on what preceded the coming of St. Peter to the Holy Mountain. We must simply mention some informative points which will help in the elaboration and analysis of our subject. St. Peter lived in the 8th century AD, and at a young age after his general schooling, he became a soldier in the imperial battalions, receiving the rank and title of Scolaros. In a battle against the Arabs, he was taken captive and imprisoned in Samara, which was then the capital of the caliphate of the Abyssinians. With the miraculous help of St. Nicolaus and St. Simeon Theodokos, he was freed from prison and taken to Rome. There, through the intervention of St. Nicolaus, he received the monastic habit from the Pope. What St. Gregory Palamas says about St. Peter after his liberation, that he was set his heart on heaven, forgetting his parents and relatives, and that the only thing which he pursued was to do God's will and give himself completely to Christ, 
is very characteristic. St. Gregory writes, quote, Thus he too fixed the eye of his soul, his noose, firmly on heaven, readily overlooking everything, home, fatherland, parents, blood relations, indeed all friendships, and guarding against all pleasure, or rather guarding against enjoying anything. He lived the godly life alone with one single endeavor above alls, to cling ceaselessly to the will of God and for Christ to be all and in all. This passage also shows the way in which one becomes a monk, just as it still goes on today among the monks of the holy mountain. One great fire burns up their heart, growing constantly in their heart, is an unquenchable desire to do God's will in their life and an insatiable longing to live only for and in God. It is a sober intoxication, as St. Dionysios the Areopagite would say, and naturally this shows not only the beginning of the monastic way of life, but also its continuation, which is to say that the monastic life and way of life is a life in Christ devoted entirely to God. This is not said with reference to the body alone, but first and foremost to the dedication of the noose and its adherence to God. After his monastic tonsure by the Pope in Rome, he found a ship to take him to his native land. The boat was to go to Asia Minor by way of Crete. While he was still in Rome, he saw in his sleep the ever-Virgin Mother of God and his guardian St. Nicholas asking her, where will Peter lodge, O mistress? Then the mother of God answered that she was to take him to her own mountain where she herself would look after all who dwell there. Let us look at this response assurance of our Panagia, which is quoted on the holy mountain and in the Hagiaritic Fathers to this day. Quote, There is a mountain in Europe very beautiful and very large, facing Libya and extending quite far out in the sea. This place I have chosen out of the whole earth and decided to give it to the monastic way of life. So I have dedicated it to be a special habitation for myself, and from now on it will be called holy. I will champion throughout their lives those who struggle here against the common enemy of men. And I will certainly be their invincible ally, a guide as to what they should do, an interpreter of what they should not do, a protectress, physician, provider of food, for that sure feeding and cure which refer to the body, to maintain and help it, and to the spirit, to empower it, and not let it fall away from the good. Moreover, I will keep them in my Son and God, and will ask him that those who end their lives well here may have perfect forgiveness of their sins. End quote. In this ap apocalyptic assurance and promise of the Theotokos, many things can be seen, but I would like to emphasize only two. The first is that the Theotokos reveals that many monks will settle on Athos, who will be dedicated to God and will worship her Lord. It will be her own place, for it will be called the Garden of the Panagia and the Holy Mountain. The second is that the Theotokos herself will be the protectress and helper of those who have settled there. She will provide for their essential needs. She will be 
a guardian, physician, and fosterer. And she promises that she will ask her son that anyone who dies well in this place will be forgiven for all his sins. This speech, as St. Gregory Palamas says, gives great pleasure and spiritual enjoyment to all who dwell on the holy mountain, chiefly because it promises the salvation of their souls. Moreover, the Panagia promises to help them not only in the present life, but especially in the future life, with release from their sins. And I know well that this speech, which has been in circulation down to our time, is the consolation and encouragement of the monks in many difficulties of their monastic life. For the life on Athos is really hard from the human point of view, but also the consolations of the Mother of God are many. She is felt to be their ally and help, protectress of their lives, a comforter and animating spirit. After a short stay in Crete, where the saint performed miracles, the boat then sailed for his native land. But suddenly a headwind arose, and the ship remained motionless. Then Peter rose from his peaceful seat and asked what that mountain was. When he learned that it was called Athos, he announced to all why the boat was remaining motionless. Quote, here it is, he said, God willing, that I will finish my life. He asked the man at the helm to turn the boat to the left toward the shore at once, and this was done without delay, whereupon the boat was released from its bonds and began to move at once. The boat grounded on the shore, where its passengers, not without tears, put the noble man ashore at the foot of the mountain. And they continued their journey because the saint had told them that the journey would be without danger. Thus, St. Peter was the first inhabitant of the holy mountain, and he began a hard and relentless struggle against the devil in order to attain deification by grace. St. Gregory Palamas describes the saint's way of life on the holy mountain, which nevertheless, relatively speaking, is the true way of life of every Athenite monk who fights against the devil, the passions, and sin in order to become a partaker of the grace of God. This analysis which the saint makes is in reality also analysis of the life of all the Hagiorite fathers. Through these struggles they earn the title of the Athenite, the Hagiorite. St. Gregory presents the whole genuine Hagioritic life in all that he analyzes. Immediately after he came to the mountain, he entered its inaccessible and untrodden places, having turned to God alone and by himself. Renouncing even the rudimentary needs of the human nature, he lived a life equal to the angels. He was plagued by the cold and the burning heat, frosts, snows, and rains, naked and in the open air. The saint wanted to live complete poverty and asceticism to perfection, and therefore he dwelt in caves, exposed to all the atmospheric conditions. His food, which consisted of what he obtained from several plants, was very little. In this way, his flesh was terribly wasted. He did this not because he thought, like the Manichaeans, that the body was evil, but because he wanted to fight against the carnal mind. Along with his bodily asceticism, he also applied himself to the watchful inner asceticism of the soul. To this purpose, he tried to make his noose, which was scattered among the sensations and the surroundings, return to his heart. And since this is achieved by means 
of the so-called hesychistic method and life, the saint, quote, set up the precise school of Hezekiah. St. Gregory goes on in this writing to describe more analytically the hesychistic method by which St. Peter and all the true Hagiorites lived. It is in this light that we too must look at what St. Gregory analyzes. The hesychistic and monastic life cannot be understood apart from this analysis. When the noose comes back from sensory things, that is to say from its wandering among the things of the senses, and when it returns from the profusion of its occupation with all the things of the senses and begins to watch over the inner man, then it sees at once the horrid mask acquired from its wandering and earthly things. As a result of its wandering round about in the sensory world and its diffusion among the passions and in the surrounding world, the noose has come to be wearing a mask, a disguise. This means that it has been filled with images and fantasies which covered its visual power and lost its sight. Therefore, we speak of the darkening of the noose. Seeing this mask, this cover, it hastens to purify it with mourning. When this cover has been removed, then, since the soul is not scattered among various relationships, the ascetic acquires peace, embraces stillness, and acquires the knowledge of God as far as it is possible. Then the ascetic, through constant watchfulness, lest the noose should scatter again and the devil find a way into his soul, surpasses his very nature and is deified by participation, always progressing for the better. In this state, the noose is freed from every passion and offers the soul freedom from all desire, which means that the soul has no sinful and impassioned relationships with the world of sensory things. Not only this, but also the noose with all the other powers of the soul turns to God, increases in perfection. It raises not only above material things, but also above intelligible things and thoughts which are entangled with fantasy and presents itself deaf and dumb to God. This is the person's rebirth and reformation. Therefore, man's rebirth is not independent of the hesychistic method and way of life by which the noose is freed from all that is sensory and intelligible and is a partaker of the uncreated grace of God. But when the noose tastes the grace of God, then it also brings to the attached body many signs of divine beauty. This is because there's a close relationship between the body and the soul. Therefore, when the soul participates in the grace of God, the body too receives a sense of grace. When the ascetic reaches this state, he lives the virtuous life, which is not an external artificial human behavior, but the godlike and incomparable way of virtue. Then he acquires the gift of miracles, which is immovable or difficult to move toward evil, and the gift of insight or foresight, when he sees clearly even things which are happening very far away. The ascetic attains the experience and revelation not only of things that are going on or of things that have happened in the past, but also of what is going to happen in the future. Thus he acquires spiritual knowledge. The end of all these things is 
superlative monastic perfection, true Hezekiah, or rather what we've called the fruit of true Hezekiah. This is the pure gospel way of life, which we find in Holy Scripture, in both the Old and New Testaments. For the way of perfection is the same, and we find it in all the saints of our church. There is no other way for man to partake of the defying energy of God. This way of the discipline of Hezekiah is guarded as the apple of their eye even today by the true Hagiorite fathers, who are the prototype and model for every ascetic and every Christian, wherever they may be. It was in this way also that the first inhabitant of the holy mountain, St. Peter, lived and thus established the prototype of every genuine Hagiorite monk. His asceticism was very tough. He abandoned men and loved solitude, lived in the company of the wild beasts in the forests of dense shrubs in the caves that caused sickness, and lived side by side with venomous snakes, as the devil himself acknowledged when he appeared in order to tempt him. St. Peter preferred the hard and grievous life, pursuing it with prudence and astonishing courage. He cast all his hope and care upon God and sought help only from him. Such was the abandon of his whole life to God that God took a personal interest in sending him bread. The providence of God also fed him, who was working on this earth no less than those above, with bread brought by an angel at regular periods of days. Since on earth he was living an angelic life, and conduct no lower than that of the angels, God fed him in an ineffable and miraculous way. The carrier angel also showed him manna, natural as well as various dainties, which nourished and comforted the man of God. The saint, as St. Gregory Palamas says, lived as in paradise, carrying some small tokens of it to the things below and the land of social intercourse. That is to say, there were only a few signs to show that he still had his mortal and passable body. St. Gregory describes St. Peter the Athenite's ascetic way of life, living ascetically, carefree, unbusied, and greatest of all, free from fancy, taking pleasure and delighting daily with simple applications of his noose in noetic visions. His way of life also made an impression on the tempting devil himself, who in one appearance said to him, And you, in your seventh year here, without tasting human food. Indeed, for his first seven years, St. Peter did not taste human food, that is to say cooked food. And we must note that his ascetic life on Athos, without seeing any man, only toward the end he met a hunter, as we shall see, it lasted for 53 entire years. St. Peter's ascetic life was admirable. Since man is composed of soul and body, ascesis is of both the soul and the body. That is to say, the asceticism of the soul and that of the body cannot be separated. Moreover, the body too will be glorified in the age to come when it is to share in the uncreated deifying energy of God. Asceticism of the body consists of fasting, vigil, abandoning bodily comforts, while asceticism of the soul 
consists in purifying the noose and the heart and liberation from rambling and fantasy. To be sure, since there is a great unity between the body and soul, that is why bodily asceticism refers to the soul as well, and asceticism of the soul refers to the body as well. Orthodox asceticism is aimed at the whole entire man. For example, we must say that the effort to make the noose return to the heart, to free itself from its wandering in the surrounding world, and to be purified of images and representations of sensory and imaginary things does not take place without bodily asceticism. That is to say, without temporary inactivity of the bodily senses. Moreover, bodily asceticism cannot be practiced in a Manichaean framework. The Manichaeans called the body evil and did all they could to, to be free of it. But orthodox asceticism does not regard the body as evil, nor seek to free the soul from it. According to orthodox teaching, it is not the body that is evil, but a carnal mind is evil. We do not seek to liberate our soul from the body because the body too is transformed by the grace of God in which the noose has a share. What we have seen of the ascetic life of St. Peter may seem paradoxical and strange. However, if we make a careful examination, we will notice that it is not only the ascetics and saints who lived in this way through the ages, but so do the ascetics living on Mount Athos today. Instances are being told, as I too have personally verified, of ascetics who keep vigil in prayer all night, who live in caves in difficult conditions, who dwell in the open air, who have just one tunic and no shoes. Readers note, please see the life of St. Joseph the Hezekist and St. Arsenios the Cave Dweller. To continue, there are also fathers on the holy mountain today who assert that ascetics are still living in the caves of Mount Athos, entirely unseen by men and naked but clothed in the uncreated grace of God, imitating St. Peter of Athos in every way. But all the other ascetics in the monasteries and skeets wanting to be in tune with the Orthodox tradition, they are living in a way similar to that of St. Peter, limiting their necessities to a minimum and practicing noetic hezekiah. We too live and have our, our being in the prayers and blessings of these men. 4. The Temptations of the Devil It is clear that in the life of the saints the devil wages war against the ascetics. The more one contends and is perfected, the more dreadfully one is attacked by the devil, who is the enemy of man's salvation. Moreover, according to the church's teaching, the devil is not a simple impersonation of evil, but a real spirit who tries to beguile men and take them captive. He especially hates inordinately those who have a great measure of virtue and saintliness. St. Peter could not have been an exception to this struggle. St. Gregory Palamas describes four particular attacks of the devil against St. Peter. These attacks, this way of personal temptation is characteristic, for it shows much the same way as that followed by the Hagarite ascetic fathers in waging their warfare still today. A. Because of the way in which at the beginning of his monastic life the saint succeeded in ridding himself of every fantasy, 
The devil could not fight him with dreams through the spirit of imagination, which is known as the vehicle of the noetic soul. Knowing this fact, and at the same time seeing that he was exhausted from asceticism, naked and defenseless, the devil appeared in the form of a soldier who was leading a multitude of archers. He entered the cave which the saint had as his dwelling place and invited him to fight, while the multitude of archers outside the cave were making a great disturbance and noise, smashing the rocks and uprooting or breaking the trees. How did the saint face this warfare? That great athlete of Christ, somewhat frightened for a time, ran to God with prayer, raised his noetic eye and fixed it upon him. Then the devil disappeared. St. Peter's way of facing temptation is very significant. He did not enter into dialogue with the devil, and he did not answer his provocations with insolence and boldness, but he began to pray while turning and fixing his noose entirely and purely on God. In the teaching of the Holy Fathers, the great value and importance of pure noetic prayer shows very clearly. When man attempts to keep his noose pure and cast it upon God, the devil is burnt up. The purity of the noose is stronger than the atomic bomb. B. The devil, defeated by his first frontal attack by St. Peter's noetic prayer, devised another sort of temptation. He returned leading a great army of reptiles, and he himself appeared like a fearful dragon of wondrous size. St. Gregory Palamas describes the appearance of the devil as such. With his long neck lifted up from the ground, he seemed to emit sparks from his eyes, and his breath seemed to blow fire from his jaw, while his tongue appeared to be moving full or seemingly full of deadly poison, and he was threatening to seize to capture him. The saint's attitude was almost the same as on the previous occasion. He turned to God in prayer. He did not at all turn to look at the frightful sight, the devil, but like another Moses, he lifted his hands to heaven, and at once the mental Amalek disappeared. Even in these attacks, St. Peter was always mindful, and his prayer was brief and uplifted. This shows once more the great value of pure prayer and mindfulness. Thus the saint succeeded in having peace even when he was being attacked by the enemy. St. Gregory Palamas says that the more the saint was attacked, the more he was crowned, and in this way the devil, in trying to conquer him, unintentionally crowned him. St. Gregory regards this struggle as matching and equal to that of the martyrs. 3. The third temptation was more crafty. The devil now took the form of a man in order to attack him. As he had tempted Adam with the snake and with Eve, so he did also to St. Peter, with the difference that since there was no woman there to make the drama persuasive, he pretended to be one of the servants which he had had at home. First he reminded him of his parents, his sisters, friends, home country, neighbors, and showed him the lamentation of these people and of his country because they'd lost him. Then he asked him why he'd left people and loved the desert and lived with the wild beasts and other creeping things and the animals in the forests and the caves. He also made use of scriptural passages. He reminded him of the case of Abraham, who lived among men and was saved. 
And he reminded him of other people who had children and through the birth of their children remained immortal. Then he asked him, Are you going to end your life here, letting all your efforts do you no good and give you no joy either now or later? He cited many scriptural passages such as, Let your light so shine before men, as much as to say that he was not offering to men the gifts which God had given him and he was neglecting to carry out God's commandment. He reminded him of passages from the Holy Scripture where it says that we must not be concerned only for our own salvation, but also for the salvation of our brothers, because whoever saves one brother will cover a multitude of sins. St. Gregory Palamas says that the wily devil spoke at length as, quote, an expert on the Scriptures and pointed in reality to the tree of good and evil as he did in the past to Adam trying in an evil way to push him out of the paradise of stillness. The holy mountain where he was living in Noetic Hezekiah was really a paradise, and the wily devil wanted to cast him out of there. Then St. Peter raised his voice higher against the deceit and cried out for the help to the mother of God, who is the reason for our restoration and salvation. The devil, seeing that he could not delude him, threw off his mask and fled in disgrace, leaving the victor's prize to the saint. Defeated in this attempt as well, the devil then reached the ultimate limit of desperation and resorted to a dreadful weapon against St. Peter. He appeared as an angel of light, as a captain of the host of the Lord of glory. The devil, having been removed from light because with the fall he had become dark, took on the garment of light and approached the saint. As he came toward the saint in the cave where he lived, he greeted him saying, Be a man and be strong, Peter. To the saint's question, Who are you? He replied, I am captain of the Lord of glory. I have come to make known to you the reward that is stored up in the heavenly treasures for the sufferings you have endured to this day and to teach you what you must do from now on. In other words, he posed as a captain sent by God. On the one hand, to inform him of the reward which awaited him in heaven for his victory in the warfare, for his ascetic life, and for his godly achievements. And on the other hand, to teach him what he must do from this moment onward. The first message was an attempt to stir in him a conceit about his successes and his spiritual contests. He was told that he had surpassed the ascetic feats of all the saints who came before him and that he would therefore receive greater rewards than any of them. Elijah fasted for 40 days, but he, Peter, had gone without food for seven years. Daniel dwelt with a few wild beasts, but he, Peter, dwelt with many wild beasts and for a longer time. Job showed great patience and endurance, but in something involuntary, while he, Peter, of his own will, lived in those difficult places and had such great patience. The second message on the visit was intended to drive him out of that place of paradise, for he told him that he lacked only one thing. He ought, in imitation of Christ, to leave that place and journey among men with the sole aim of saving men. Christ had remained on the mountain for a short time and then had gone down to men to give them saving laws. In witness of this event, he also mentioned related words of David, in this way, the evil one, according to St. Gregory Palamas, became a eulogist of virtue, 
mixing honey with destruction. But St. Peter understood the devil's cunning. Just as the goldsmiths have Lydia as a touchstone to examine gold, so also the divine Peter had torment as a touchstone for the eye of the soul, which is the noose, by which it lifts the purified noose toward God. In fact, when a man's noose is pure, then he can make the clear distinction between uncreated and created. Having understood the devil's scheme to make him proud and to drive him away from the place where the mother of God had sent him, he said, But I am an unworthy of seeing an angel. How so? Because I fled men and shall flee until the end. I regard myself as unworthy of living with them, as I too worthless to be among them, and as the prophet says, not a man. Here we see the great humility of the saint. He feels that he is unworthy of the angelic vision and unworthy of helping men because he is more worthless than they are and not a man. And at the humility of the saint, the devil disappeared. In the description of the devil's methods of temptation, we see the whole ascetic life. And in reality, the struggle of genuine Hagiorite fathers is described there. I have known personally many Hagiorite fathers who told me such stories. The devil uses the same weapons, the same methods to defeat the athletes. It is not only a question of warfare with thoughts and desires, but of personal attacks against the ascetics who have attained high degrees of holiness. There is also great significance in the fact that this writing of St. Gregory Palamas presents clearly the way in which the Hagiorites face the devil in his personal attacks. It is the traditional method which is called hesychistic life. Pure prayer, a pure noose, prayer to the mother of God, deepest humility, mourning, and a sense of unworthiness are the weapons which blow the devil away. By all these means, the Hagiorite monk acquires the great gift of discernment of spirits, that is to say, he is well able to distinguish created from uncreated, divine from demonic. And this is essential in the life of ascetics. Thus they distinguish whether it is the will of God to go out into society and teach men who are in need, or whether it is a temptation of the evil demon. Therefore, sometimes they go out and help men, and sometimes they refuse this service. In general, it must be said that the greatest skill is to know how to oppose the devil in his wiles. And the only contribution at this point is the traditional method of cure, which is purification of the heart, the return of the noose to the heart, which comes about through living in stillness. 5. The End of St. Peter's Life St. Peter the Athenite maintained his ascetic life on the holy mountain for 46 years without ever meeting anyone. But God wanted him in his old age to reveal his virtue and his angelic life. Therefore, before his falling asleep, things were arranged so that all his achievements were recognized. A hunter who was hunting a stag, or rather was led by this stag in God's economy, came to the saint. Suddenly, Seeing a man very gray-haired, squalid, dirty, broken down, lacking any covering. At first the hunter was frightened, but the saint invited him to come near, saying, I too am a man, man. Take courage and put off flight. Be glad you have come back to us, for God has perhaps sent you here to hear about me today. St. Peter understood that God had sent this man to be his hearer, 
and messenger. Then St. Peter narrated his whole life, how he came to the holy mountain, the way in which he had lived throughout his life, and what kind of temptations he had from the devil, his victories over him, and the gifts which he had received from God. And God permitted this to happen in order that men might be helped and that they would have examples and images of those who had wrestled in the struggle for deification by grace. That hunter, full of amazement, asked to stay near him and to follow the same way of life. Indeed, he insisted, I cannot let you be out of my sight any more, O man of God, for if I leave you, I will not willingly drag out an intolerable life. But St. Peter, a prudent ascetic, knowing that the man had a a wife and a family, as well as much property with which many poor people could be fed, extorted him to go to the world to take care of the poor. At the same time, he urged him to look after himself, to keep as far away as possible from worldly pleasures and cares, to keep his heart in remembrance of God, mentioning his name in the depths of his heart, to keep on studying the divine books and words, and after a year to come back again and he would learn more clearly what was God's will for him. Here with the other things we can see the way in which the Holy Fathers give instruction. First, in spite of the many years and hard asceticism, they are real men. Many people think that the rigor of the ascetic struggle makes a man hard and insensible to the problems of life, but also indiscreet in advice. But quite the opposite is true. When the ascetic life is lived in a godly way in deep humility, the ascetic throws off the mask of dividedness and becomes a real man. Thus he acts most naturally, understands the questions and problems of the other, and guides him in a realistic way. My personal experience confirms that the hermit Hagiorite monks who have been out of the world for years understand us much better than do men who live among us, and they guide us in a practical and realistic way. This is true because they have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. They are made inwardly whole. There are no such splits as we see in people who are possessed by passions. Next, we see in this advice of St. Peter that the Christian life is the same. All men, wherever they live, must make the same journey in a similar way. Sobriety and prayer, noetic stillness, this is the essential way to man's deification. St. Gregory Palamas then describes how that hunter, after a time, returned to St. Peter with two other monks and one man possessed of an evil spirit. He himself went faster than the others, and then he saw very decently lying there, unburied, the corpse of the great man who had given up his spirit and given himself over to the Lord of spirits. Faced with this sight, he fell into great grief, for he had been deprived of the great presence of the saint, that great treasure. It is important to say that in the meantime, when the two monks and the demoniac came, the latter was seized by the demon and began to call out to the body of St. Peter. The demon, frightened lest the saint should drive him out of the man, which he did, accused him of being greedy because he was not satisfied to have waged war against him all his life, but still even now, when he was dead, he wanted to defeat him. And he assured him that he would not go out of that man. What the demon said to St. Peter is striking, 
and therefore I will quote it in full. Quote, Glutton, have you not had enough satisfaction out of defeating me? For 53 years now, you have not stopped fighting and continuously sending us away. Although you are a man in the face of all sorts of arrows sent from us, you have been like the unconquerable rock whose name you bear. And now you think that these things are not enough. Perhaps you also want to drive me away from the little man in whom, after having made many attempts with toil, I have now found entry and taken up residence. But I am not going to be persuaded. I will not go out and abandon the only comfortable lodging left to me. End quote. Finally, that man was liberated from the demon, since even the body of the saint was filled with the graces of the Holy Spirit. St. Gregory Palamas theologizes on this point as well. He says that as Christ's body did not separate from its divinity after the departure of his soul, because of the union of the human nature with divine nature in his hypostases and personhood, the same is true also with all the saints who have attained deification. And those who are deified when their souls are parted from their bodies, quote, that divine spirit has made its dwelling there, does not fly away from the dead bodies. St. Gregory Palamas then describes the man's journey up to the time when they arrived at Thrace and at the village of Fotokomis, where the body was buried. He also describes all the miracles which he performed. He cured that body that kept off evil, those possessed, driving out all the demons, and he also cured many sick people. And this is natural, for his body contained the energy of the All-Holy Spirit. 6. Characterizations of St. Peter In all this excellent writing of St. Gregory Palamas, many ornamental epithets for St. Peter the Athenite have been preserved. I should like to mention some of these, which show the degree of deification of St. Peter, as well as the fact that he is an example of true monasticism and the real Christian life. He is characterized as, quote, the man of God, the most understanding teacher of noose and intellect, the man with a great noose. This our Peter, great among the fathers, immortal, even after his death, is the best man of the age. Great. He characterizes him as being truly a man of God, or rather shining above us, and really an angel of God, and an initiate of the, and seer of things above. All these ornamental epithets, which are not exaggerations, so show what St. Peter was, re, was really deified participant in the deifying energy of God. St. Peter the Athenite, whose biography was written by St. Gregory Palamas, is further characterized as a leader and guide for those who are concerned with such things. It says, such a leader and guide for us to such things. There are surely some, as we've said before, who imitate him in everything, but all the monks similarly follow this same path. They live in unceasing sobriety and prayer. Therefore, the life of St. Peter is an example of the true way of life. There have, have to be examples of the perfect way of life, and then all of us, according to our disposition and inclination, must make the adaptations which lead to living this perfect way of life. In this sense, St. Peter the Athenite is a leader and a guide toward great ascetic struggles. The saint teaches all men who walk the same path of experience the true life. 
The saint thus set before us great wealth and a lasting medicine toward every sort of cure and an example of true philosophy for those who have chosen to live in virtue. It is a medicine of true life for all who wish to live a life of virtue. But St. Gregory Palamas admits that it is impossible not only to imitate him completely, but also to praise him worthily. He writes characteristically, None of us can either imitate him to the end or praise him adequately. But we can, each according to our ability, emulate and fittingly praise him. If each of us would try, according to our ability, to emulate his way of life and praise him, we would be doing very well wrote St. Gregory Palamas. In all that St. Gregory Palamas wrote about the life of St. Peter the Athenite, he really presented the Athenite way of life which exists to this day. At the same time, he was also presenting his own way of life. For as can be seen in all his writings, St. Gregory lived this hesychistic life of noetic stillness, faced various temptations, and attained to the vision of the uncreated light. And that is why he could confront the heretic and philosopher Barlaam. Furthermore, it is well known that the way in which a person writes shows his way of life. This is how St. Gregory lived. He was in every way an imitator of St. Peter the Athenite in asceticism and Hezekiah, in action and vision of God, praxis and theoria. In conclusion, I would like to underline once more that this life is still being lived today on the holy mountain and therefore we revere, honor, and praise it because it is the holy of holies of our orthodox theology, because there are men there who imitate St. Peter the Athenite in similar measures. The assurance offered by contemporary Athenites that also today on the holy mountain there are men in every way like St. Peter makes us stand speechless and in wonder before him. For wherever true life exists, there death does not exist, and therefore no criticism is valid. End of chapter 4. Chapter 5. Monasticism and Monks St. Gregory Palamas was a true Hagiorite monk who not only lived on the holy mountain for a great length of time as a monk, an abbot, and a hesychist, but at the same time lived the true monastic practice. His life, as St. Philotheus describes it, calls to mind great personalities of the monastic life. Later he was to speak constantly of the monastic life and ways. Thus the homilies intended for monks as well as those spoken to his flock in Thessaloniki often refer to the monastic life and how it is lived. Therefore in what follows we shall look at his teaching about the monastic way of life. We should emphasize that we are not going to exhaust the subject here, for in other chapters of the book much will be said about just what the monastic life is and how it is lived. But here we shall stress the fact that the monastic life, in reality, is a prophetic, apostolic, and meritic mode of life, and we shall cite a number of general elements in it which are found scattered throughout the saints' homilies. First, we make a few general remarks about how monasticism made its appearance because, unfortunately, some people are dominated by certain erroneous conceptions and views on this subject. 1. Monasticism as Prophetic, Apostolic, and a Martyr's Life The impression exists that monasticism developed in the 4th century 
And therefore, some people are led to the conclusion that it is a later historical manifestation of life, which, as they maintain, altered the simplicity of the gospel. On these grounds, the Protestants effaced monasticism from the life of their church, as did the Protestantizing so-called Orthodox Christians, essentially denying its value and significance for the life of the church as a whole. However, monasticism, although it developed in the 4th century as a special form of life as anchorites, nevertheless, as a way of life, it existed from the beginning of the appearance of the church. The whole of Holy Scripture describes the life of the righteous and the Christians as a monastic life. The original condition of Adam and Eve in paradise was essentially an experience of the angelic way of life, of the monastic life. The description given in the Old Testament and in the interpretive analysis by the Holy Fathers shows that Adam and Eve lived in the pure and holy monastic way. St. John Chrysostom gives an analytical description of the life of Adam and Eve as an angelic life. St. John of Damascus teaches that in that first sensible paradise, Adam and Eve experienced even the intelligible paradise, that they lived in the state of illumination of their noose and of deification. St. Nicetus Stathatos says the same. It is a common patristic tradition that the paradise of Eden was a blessed place in which Adam and Eve lived in communion with God, having an illumined noose and vision of God. Moreover, St. Gregory Palamas relates the life of the monks in the monasteries to the life of Adam and Eve in paradise. In the holy monasteries, which are places of paradise, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not absent, nor is the evil lecturer, the devil, who is ready to guide the monk into sin, as he guided Adam and Eve then. Footnote, reference St. Gregory Palamas, homily number 40. To continue, therefore he advises the monks to be very watchful because they may fall into sin as Adam and Eve did through the cunning of the devil who took advantages of their carelessness even if they were not subject to the passion but dispassionate and went round in a place free of passions. Thus he advised the monks to avoid the company of worldly people so the monastic life is the life and condition of paradise before the fall, and no doubt Adam and Eve were the first monks. The Old Testament prophets really lived the life which the monks live today. The circles of the prophets as they are described in the books of the Old Testament were groups which formed around a man enlightened by God and were being taught about living a life devoted to God. If we give careful study to these groups of prophets, we shall see that they do not differ essentially from the holy gatherings of monks today who have a yeronda, an elder, an abbot, practice obedience and prayer and are being cured so that they too may be found worthy of becoming prophets. We know very well that even in the Old Testament one finds the stages of spiritual perfection, purification of the heart, illumination of the noose, and deification. So the great prophetic personalities of the Old Testament lived in this monastic way. The life of the prophet Elijah was not very different from that of the hermits and ascetics. 
The only difference is that he lived in the period before the incarnation of Christ, whereas the ascetics today are members of the body of Christ. Likewise, we know very well that the holy forerunner, who lived in the desert from an early age, lived in the monastic way. The evangelist Luke writes plainly, quote, So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Luke 180. His life in the desert when he was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Matthew 3 verse 4. His message and his whole way of life, even his death, called to mind the life of the monks and especially of the solitary monks who sacrificed themselves every day for the love of God in order to keep the holy commandments of Christ in their daily life. The composition and life of the apostolic group calls to mind the monastic communities. The disciples left everything to follow Christ. Their submission was preceded by leaving their material goods and departing from their families, just as Abraham did, and then submission followed. As we read the Gospels, we see the twelve apostles and Matthew as subordinates to their great spiritual father, Christ. For three years they were being purified of their passions, receiving the cure through Christ's words. Then a few of them attained the vision of the uncreated glory of God in the human nature of the Logos of the Word on Mount Tabor. And finally, all the disciples were found worthy of Pentecost, received the Holy Spirit, and became members of the body of Christ. In Christ's teaching, the Christian life appears as a monastic life, the Beatitudes show clearly that the Christian life is the monastic life. The first Beatitude refers to the poor in spirit, to the awareness of the sin and the passion within us. The second Beatitude speaks of godly mourning, for when through the Holy Spirit a person has become aware of the existence within him of the old man, he weeps, he mourns. The third beatitude refers to meekness, which is a fruit and result of godly mourning. The fourth beatitude is about hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, for keeping God's commandments in daily life. The fifth beatitude refers to the sense of God's mercy, for when the Christian weeps for his sins, he experiences God's mercy. The sixth beatitude speaks about the purity of heart, which is a fruit of mourning, and of the experience of God's mercy. The seventh beatitude refers to peace, which is a fruit of purity of heart. And the last beatitude shows the end of the spiritual life, which is the persecution and martyrdom which the deified person undergoes. This is why the martyrdom of the saints is not a matter of a strong will, but a fruit of seeing God. See Matthew chapter 5, verse 112. To continue. The Christian life is seen in Christ's Beatitudes, but this also constitutes the monastic path and way of life. Someone asked me to explain just what monasticism is and what the work of a monk is. I told him that if we read Christ's Beatitudes in the interpretive tradition of the church, we will understand very well what the monastic life is. The way in which the apostolic churches are organized is very suggestive of the way in which contemporary monasteries are organized. Common uses among the first Christians in Jerusalem 
are reminiscent of the monk's common use, common ownership, and a total shedding of possessions. Moreover, the renunciation of material goods is for the sake of a person's purification and his attaining an illumined noose and noetic prayer. It is only in this light that we should examine the problem of common use. It is not simply a sociological fact, but a purely ascetic and spiritual one. In the Apostle Paul's epistles to the churches, we see clearly the frameworks within which the first Christians lived and their aims as well. They had to die to the passions, live the cross of Christ in their daily lives, since it is by the cross that man is made dead to the world, and as a result, the world is dead to man. Those who had wives should be, quote, as though they had none, and in general, all had to keep the commandments of God in their daily lives. Apart from these things in the epistles of the Apostle Paul, it is evident that the first Christians had noetic prayer in their hearts, quote, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, and quote, Ephesians 5.19. Likewise, it is clear that in the apostolic churches there were Christians who belonged to all the ranks of the saved. That is to say, they were either purified, illuminated, or deified. I do not intend to list all the passages which make this reality clear. What I wanted to emphasize is that in the texts of the New Testament, the Christian life is presented in the way which we recognize as the monastic life. Essentially, the first apostolic churches were therapeutic communities in the orthodox sense of the term, when the Christians were purified of passions, illuminated and climbed the mountain of the vision and theoria of God. If we look carefully into the tradition of the church, we will find that the testing which one undergoes today in order to become a monk is the same as was the practice for becoming a Christian. The novices of each monastery are the catechumens of the early church, and the monks are the illuminated Christians. This is said from the point of view of the interior spiritual life. In the early church, baptism was preceded by catechism, which in reality was the method for purifying the heart of passions, freeing the noose from the passions, logic, and the conditions of the environment. This same thing is being continued in monasteries today by the order of novices. The novice goes through the stage of repentance, change of direction, and purification. When the repentance is completed, then the, quote, second baptism is received. The person discovers what the coming of the Holy Spirit means, and God permitting, he can ascend to higher degrees of the spiritual life. By studying the order of novices in monasteries today, we can be helped to understand how the catechumens are prepared for membership in the church. And the study of Orthodox monasticism in its genuine expression can guide us to an understanding of the functioning of the first apostolic churches. The monastic life is an evangelical life, a life of repentance and keeping Christ's commandments, an effort towards purity of heart and illumination of the noose. This comes about through God's energy and man's synergy. The life which Christ offered to the world is for all men. Moreover, as we've seen, St. Gregory Palamas lived in a family which had the evangelical monastic way of life. 
he grew through prayers and lived essentially as a monk. He had attained the life of a monk before going to the holy mountain, while he was living in Constantinople and was still studying. What we are going to say about his teaching should be seen in this light. The fact that the monastic life is the evangelical life and conduct, and the fact that everyone can live it, can also be seen, among other things, from the teaching of St. Simeon, the new theologian, which no one can doubt, because it is expressed by this leading teacher of the Church, and there are many persons in the Bible who confirm it. St. Simeon teaches that it is possible for all, monks and lay people, constantly to weep, repent, and pray to God. It is possible to have a wife and children, a multitude of servants, much property, and many cares in this life, and not only to weep and pray every day, but even to reach perfect virtue. He writes characteristically, quote, So it is possible for all men, brethren, not only for the monks, but for the laymen as well, to be penitent at all times and continually, and to weep and entreat God, and by such practices to acquire all other virtues as well. He cites as witnesses St. John Chrysostom and the prophet King David, according to whom it is possible for a person who has a wife and children, men and women servants, a large household and great possessions, and who is prominent in worldly affairs, not only daily to weep and pray and repent, he can also attain to perfection of virtue if he so wishes. He can receive the Holy Spirit and become a friend of God and enjoy the vision of him. As examples, he takes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Lot, at Sodom, Moses, David, and the apostle Peter, who was unlettered, a fisherman, and a married man. St. Simeon cites the example of a young man by the name of George, who was granted to have an experience of the vision of the glory of God. This was Simeon himself when he was still young. Living in Constantinople, about 20 years of age, after great ascetic prayer, while he was performing his usual tasks, quote, during the day, he managed a patrician's household and daily went to the palace engaged in worldly affairs, end quote. He saw the uncreated light. When he was noetically saying the prayer, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, suddenly a flood of divine radiance appeared from above and filled the room. He looked around him, did not know if he was standing on the ground. He thought that he himself had become that light. His noose then ascended to heaven and beheld yet another light, which was clearer than the one close at hand. And referring to this experience, he goes on to say, quote, Have you learned that living in the midst of the city does not hinder us from practicing the commandments of God as long as we are zealous and vigilant? and that solitude and retirement from the world are useless if we are slack and careless. So the monastic life is the prophetic and apostolic life, which in reality is the life of repentance, purifying one's heart, keeping Christ's commandments. It is not alien to the life of the church, nor is it a life which developed much later in the fourth century and then crept into the life of the church. But it is the new life which Christ brought into the world by becoming man and the God-man, Theanthropos. 
In the first apostolic period, all the Christians lived like monks, and therefore there was no need to go out of the world and journey to special places. During the persecutions, the apostolic life was also expressed in the form of martyrdom, because, as we've said before, the, the end of the Beatitudes is persecution and martyrdom for the glory of Christ. So just as the apostolic life is at the same time prophetic, and that of a martyr, so also the life of the martyr is simultaneously prophetic and apostolic. However, when after the cessation of the persecutions, Christianity became worldly, it lost the prophetic, apostolic, and martyr's experience. Then the Christians who wanted to live more profoundly by Christ's commandments left the world in order to live God's will in the highest degree. So we have the first phase of monasticism as anchoritism with the great personality of St. Anthony, the desert teacher. He was followed by other Christians as well, and so the Skeetes and monasteries were created. However, this is not a question of a new form of Christianity, but of living true Christianity by the prophets, apostles, and martyrs' experience. The monastic life, then, is the sequel to that of the prophets, apostles, and martyrs of the first church. It is the life in harmony with the keeping of Christ's commandments. The fact that it is only in this light that we can look at monasticism is clear from St. Simeon the New Theologian, who declares that, quote, if instead of being timid, slothful, and despisers of God's commandments, we were zealous, watchful, and sober, we should have no need of renunciation or tonsure or the flight from the world, end quote. Therefore, slothfulness, laziness, and despising Christ's commandments, and more generally, Christianity's becoming worldly, brought renunciation, tonsure, and flight from the world. This shows that the monastic life is the life of the Holy Gospel, which can be lived even in the midst of the world if one follows the traditional teaching given by the Church. Moreover, the homilies addressed by St. Gregory Palamas to his flock in Thessaloniki they manifest this truth. When one reads these homilies, one will find that they are distinguished by their theology and their ascetic tradition. He explains ascetic themes to his Christians. How will they get rid of their passions, their thoughts? How will they be cured? How will they experience the hesychistic and silent way of life? They are not at all like some of the spiritless, social, and moral sermons of our time, they are homilies which can very well also be read by monks. They can be read in monastic dining halls. That is to say, they meet the monastic standards. This makes evident the truth that Christ's teaching is common to all men and that there is a kinship between the Christian and monastic lives, since the latter is experience of the former, and the Christian life is in reality a monastic life with appropriate adaptations. The fact that the monastic life is the evangelical life and that a monk is one who lives evangelically can also be seen in St. Gregory Palamas's homily on St. Demetrius of Thessaloniki, in which St. Demetrius is presented as a monk. Naturally, in the time of St. Demetrius, there was no monasticism as we know it today, but every Christian who kept the will of God was essentially a monk. In his homily on St. Demetrius, the divine Gregory puts in relief the chastity of his body and soul. 
He lived in general chastity, even though he was the highest officer in the Roman army. According to St. Gregory Palamas, St. Demetrios was graced with splendid prophetic power and was counted worthy of the, quote, apostolic and teaching diaconate in a high position. He was full of virtues and was not inferior to the saints in asceticism and in their radiance of life. But he was behind some, was like others, superior to some, and surpassing others. He possessed many gifts. See St. Gregory Palamas, homily number 49. The warfare which St. Demetrius waged within his heart was comparable to the warfare of the great ascetics. He kept his noose pure of any unseemly thought, protecting the immaculate grace of holy baptism, had a will that harmonized with God's law, quote, like a book of God and a tablet and plaque engraved by God, or a writing tablet written by the finger of God and placed before all for the common use, end quote. In this way, St. Demetrios was chaste in both body and soul. He had his citizenship in heaven and walked on an equal footing with the angels, having a body as well. So St. Demetrios seems to have had an angelic life and citizenship. The patron saint of Thessaloniki was both a teacher and an apostle, wise and chaste and holy, and we may say very beautiful and spotless and made radiant by nature, zeal and grace, and quote homily 49, St. Gregory Palma. To conclude, comparing St. Demetrios with Job of the Old Testament, St. Gregory says that while Job was blameless, righteous, and pious, just as Demetrios was, Job was not praised by God for chastity, something which St. Demetrios had. His chastity showed St. Demetrius to be higher than nature and on par with the angels. From this example, it can be seen on the one hand that the monastic life is in reality the evangelical life, and on the other hand that the monk who practices chastity of body and soul is a prophet, is an apostle, and a witness of Christ. 2. The Holy Mountain at the time of St. Gregory Palamas. We cannot examine the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas about monasticism and monks unless we have knowledge about the Hagiorite monasticism of his time. This will be the subject of this section. We should point out beforehand that in the 14th century there was a great flowering of Hagiorite monasticism. This played an important role in the theological writings and in the whole theological movement which took place in the 14th century within the area of the then Roman Empire. Romanity. Footnote, the word Romanity is used to translate the Greek term of which there is no precise English equivalent. This particularly Greek term has acquired various meanings over time. It denotes both the people who used to identify themselves as Orthodox Romans in the East and the West and shared the Hellenistic culture and the Orthodox faith or else the civilization, the way of life and the traditions of Orthodox Christians under the five patriarchates. As such, it constitutes the common background and unifying element among Christians from Mesopotamia to Spain and from Egypt to Britain. In parenthesis, for further analyses, see page 233, Father John S. Romanides, 
the cure of the neurobiological sickness of religion, the Hellenic civilization of the Roman Empire, Charlemagne's lie of 794, and his lie today. To continue, it seems that there was monasticism on the holy mountain at a very early time, but in the ninth century we have witness of the presence of monasticism in the person of St. Peter the Athenite. St. Peter is considered the first inhabitant of the Holy Mountain, since there is written evidence, and it is confirmed by St. Gregory Palamas in his writings about him. The Holy Mountain was originally supervised by the emperor. Then the supervision was transferred to the patriarch, and from him to the metropolitan of Hisoros. Finally, it was transferred back to the emperor. Thus, Manathos was sometimes under the patriarch, and sometimes under the emperor. So in the 14th century, the Holy Mountain was closely linked to Constantinople. The great peak of Hagiorite monasticism began with the founding of the Great Lavra by St. Athanasios the Athenite, and continued with the founding of other monasteries. The peak of Hagiorite monasticism, which began in the 10th century, continued and grew into the 11th, during which Many monks came to the Holy Mountain and created many mandria. There were more than 180 of them. At that time, the great monasteries of Lavra, Vatopedi, Ivaron, Zerputamu, Zografu, Dokoriu, Philotheu, Esphigimeni, Rosikon, and Amphilinion were created. Apart from the building of holy monasteries, the Hagiorite lifestyle and life were also organized, and matters relating to the administration of the government of Athos were regulated. After a period of suspension, during which there were many invasions on the holy mountain with dreadful consequences for its monasticism, the growth of monasticism began again, chiefly in the 14th century. During this time, new monasteries were built, such as Pantocrators, Simonos Petra, Dionysiu, Gregoriu, and St. Paul's, and all the holy dwellings of the mountain were surrounded with walls. The monasteries were built in that time have the form of fortresses, with, quote, tower, fortress, small windows, narrow doors, and no drying yards. Of course, this form of construction was largely due to the invasions to which the Hagiorite monks had been subjected from many directions in the preceding ages. Therefore, during the time when St. Gregory Palamas lived on the Holy Mountain, there was a burst of building activity, but also intense spiritual life, which made the Holy Mountain a central point in the Byzantine Empire. At that time, on the Holy Mountain, there were monks with great radiance and intensity of spiritual life. Of course, St. Gregory Palamas made all these things productive and developed, developed them further. When he was led by the Hezekist monks to express and formulate the life and experience of the Holy Mountain, which is the experience and life of the Orthodox Church. It is worthwhile to mention, among others, St. Gregory of Sinai and his disciples who lived in holy silence on Athos, St. Theoleptos of Philadelphia, who was the teacher of St. Gregory Palamas in Constantinople and introduced him to the mystical theology of the church, St. Sabas of Vatopedi, and so forth. 
Here we must also mention the first spiritual father of St. Gregory Palamas, St. Nicodemus, who excelled in conduct and in the vision of God. He lived in the Lavra of Vatopedi, to which St. Gregory came in order to practice holy hesychism. St. Philotheus Kokinos, writing about St. Nicodemus, whose feast is on the 11th of July, writes, quote, After arriving at the Lavra of Vatopedi, Gregory became the pupil of the noble Nicodemus, a man wonderful in both his ascetic practice and his vision of God, as all but a few of those who lived near him on Athos had discovered, who had previously reached the height of every path of virtue and had come later to Vatopedi, where, after for a long time performing the same feats with the same zeal and the same eagerness, he blessedly found there the wonderful and blessed ending of his life for Christ. This sanctified place was with such famous monks, with the hesychistic tradition, was of course to have a great influence on the young St. Gregory, who had already lived this angelic life in Constantinople and had been fed from the springs of the hesychistic life. All through his struggles for the orthodox teaching of hesychism, St. Gregory Palamas certainly received great help from the hesychist fathers and from the experience which he himself had acquired on the holy mountain. We must make specific mention of St. Nikiforos the Solitary, who was in his prime a little before 1340, and who, in practicing noetic stillness and prayer, used the psychophysical method of inhaling and exhaling while constantly calling on the name of Christ, so as to concentrate the noose in the heart. It is well known that the philosopher Barlam opposed this method of hesychistic life, considering it to be erroneous. However, St. Gregory Palamas fortified this method theologically. It is used chiefly by novices for concentrating the noose in the heart. It is a fact that in the time of St. Gregory there was rigorous vigorous spiritual and niptic life on the holy mountain. And this period of the holy mountain had great authority, chiefly through the theological presence of St. Gregory Palamas, but also through the vigorous presence of great personalities who were living the monastic life there. As evidence for this, we should mention on the one hand the Hagiorite Tome, an apologia which was signed by the eminent fathers of the mountain and played an important part in all the phases of the Hesychist disputes. On the other hand, we should mention that in the dispute between John Cantacuzin and John Peligoligos, a committee of Hagiorite fathers headed by Isaac, the most important monk on the holy mountain, went to Constantinople to reconcile the two factions. It is noteworthy that from the middle of the 14th century until the Council of Florence, almost 100 years, seven of the ten patriarchs who ascended the throne of Constantinople were Hagiorites and defenders of the hesychistic way of life. But even before this period, hesychists had ascended the patriarchal throne. And the victory of hesychism was complete and that almost until the captivity the patriarchs were hesychists. This was a fine preparation for helping the Greek people endure the long night of Turkish rule, for it is well known that hesychism sustained our people in the Greek Orthodox tradition in Rom Romanity. 
In this period, the radiance of the holy mountain extended even beyond the borders of the Byzantine Empire. The monks from foreign lands who were living in solitude on Athos and had adapted all its ascetic life carried to their countries both hesychism and all the forms of the Byzantine tradition. Consequently, the holy mountain, quote, established a focus of radiation and transmission of the social traditions of Byzantium towards the lands of the north. It was a school in which, apart from progressing in spiritual asceticism, people were trained to be translators and transcribers of the products of the Greek Christian spirit into Slavonic, into Old Serbian, into Middle Bulgarian, into Iberian and other languages, enlighteners and leaders of the Orthodox in those lands. The Hagiorite monk Sabas laid the foundations of the ecclesiastical and monastic organization in Serbia. Almost all the archbishops of Serbia were from the Hilandari Monastery. St. Gregory of Sinai brought hesychism to Bulgaria. Hagiorite monks brought the monastic life and organized the church life in Wallachia, present-day Romania, and Russia. Thus, monasticism on the holy mountain in the time of St. Gregory Palamas was in great flowering and vigor. The 14th century was a period of rebirth, if we can use this expression, for the holy mountain. Its authority extended not only to the whole area of the then Byzantine Empire, Greece, but spread beyond it. We can note, however, that Thessaloniki received the greatest influence, which is not unrelated to the fact that it was there that the reaction of the philosophers against the Hesychist fathers was first manifested. In order to have a small taste of the life of the monasteries of the Holy Mountain at the time of St. Gregory Palamas, we shall offer some data from the period when the saint was abbot at the monastery of Esphigimenu, as described by St. Philotheus Kokinos in the biography written about him. He was chosen abbot of the monastery of Esphigimenu by a common vote by the leader and patron of the mountain. This clearly means the protos, the head of the mountain, who resided in Keries, and by those fathers of the monastery distinguished by their virtue and their age, as St. Philotheus writes. St. Gregory is believed to have been led in taking up the abbacy of the monastery by those from on high rather than by human votes. The common vote of the fathers of the monastery and the protos, or head of the holy mountain, shows that there was a procedure for selection at that time, but also that St. Gregory was recognized by the Hagiuratic monks even before the Hesychistic dispute began. The holy monastery of Menu at the time of the saint's abbacy, numbered about 200 monks. This number is really large in comparison with today's numbers when no monastery on the holy mountain has more than 100 monks. St. Philotheus writes, quote, When we arrived there and took up the chair of the abbacy of the brothers whose numbers had risen to 200, end quote. We can also see from the way in which he administered the mountain, the monastery, that the Holy Monastery was a completely Cenobitic community which had divine services and demanded spiritual guidance and general care for all questions. The saint taught the monks, had the care and adornment of the Holy Temple, as well as the holy works and rites of the wonderful and most profound mysteries. 
He was likewise concerned with raising the level of liturgical celebrations. The monastery was functioning very well as a hospital of the soul, and the monks had found a real father, a physician, and therefore after his departure, some sought greater stillness and others more exact obedience and asceticism. This shows that during the abbacy of St. Gregory, the monastery was a real spiritual dispensary, a school of virtue and a sacred place. As abbot of the monastery of Esfigimenu, St. Gregory also performed three miracles. The first miracle was that he cured a monk who had fallen into delusion. This monk was engaged in noetic prayer, attempting to concentrate his noose. But since he was not watchful, the devil led him into deceit, presenting him with apparitions and deceptive images, suggesting to him that he should think they were holy. Soon he had him seduced, and he would shortly have led him into madness and ultimate withdrawal from God, if Gregory with that divine wisdom and those medicines of the spirit had not been present. The devil had convinced this monk, who was called Eudokimos, that Gregory was great and wonderful in learning and culture, but he was completely ignorant and lacking in any mystical vision of God and moral virtue of his own. Well, St. Gregory cured him, sometimes using holy teachings, patristic instructions and advice, sometimes mystical prayers and tears, and sometimes common prayers and the supplications of the church on the behalf of the ailing brother, prayers led by the saint himself. The deluded monk, Eudokimos, was freed from his error and was very successful in the monastic life through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. The second miracle which he performed had to do with the miracle-working discovery of oil. The monks, they had no oil for their food. Because there was a need, he asked them to take them to the storeroom where the empty vessels were. He stood beside one jug of oil, prayed fervently to God, who created all things out of nothing, and after blessing it with his hand with the sign of the Holy Cross, he repeated the miracle performed by the prophet Elijah. The vessel was not empty of oil for the whole year, although he and the other monks gave generously to those both inside and outside the Holy Monastery. The third miracle was related to the preceding one. When he had been informed that the shortage of oil was due to a disease of the olive trees, he went to the olive grove to pray with the elders of the monastery and the monks. First he prayed, blessed the trees in the form of the precious cross, and sanctified the area with holy supplications and entreaties and sprinkling of holy water. After the litany and the blessing, he spoke to them about how they should avoid barrenness of soul, as the worthy forerunner had done. Then he returned to the monastery. When the fruit-bearing season came, the unhealthy plants produced fruits beyond all hope, in order that the miracle might shine brightly, that the power of Christ might act in the divine Gregory. God permitted more fruits to be borne by those trees which he came near as he passed or stood near in conversation or under whose shade he sat. This small presentation of extracts from St. Gregory, the way in which he directed the Esfigimini Monastery and guided the monks, as well as the miracles which he performed, demonstrate the life of one monastery on the Holy Mountain in St. Gregory's time. The hesychistic life of the monks, the litanies and prayers, the sanctifications on the premises of the monastery, the patristic teaching, and so forth, were the spiritual atmosphere of the monks of the Holy Mountain, 
Of course, they were not without errors, which were the result of egoism and pride, but also of the work of demons who, however, were opposed by discerning fathers. All the things that we have mentioned in this section are necessary for the understanding of what is said in this book about the value of the holy mountain, monasticism, and hesychistic tradition. It is true that St. Gregory Palamas found a suitable climate. He became more of a man on the holy mountain. He lived its hesychistic atmosphere and life, but it was he who lifted it further and made it known because he developed theologically the hesychistic method of the monks and safeguarded it through the church's holy tradition. This is why the title of Hagiorite is eminently fitting for the divine Gregory. Chapter 5 Continued Monasticism and Monks 3. Monasteries and the Monastic Life In all his works, in his polemic works, his letters, the confessional works, his homilies, St. Gregory Palamas is only presenting the monastic life in its authentic expression. Indeed, he links the monastic life with the theology of our church. For as we know, theology in the Orthodox Church is not logical knowledge and thought, but experience and life, and consequently it is closely linked with asceticism. In what follows, we shall emphasize general points about monasticism and the monastic life as St. Gregory Palamas presents them, for we shall make extended analyses of this topic in other chapters. A. Naming of the Places of Ascetic Exercises In his homilies, he calls the monasteries holy frontisteria. The word frontisterion is used in the early church tradition to refer to monasteries where the monks are learning to practice ascetically the life in Christ. This term was also used in ancient Greece for the school of Socrates to mean a workroom for the concerns or thoughts of the reading room. Since asceticism in the Christian life is philosophy par excellence, because it unites man with God, that is why the monasteries are called holy frontisteria. In one of his homilies, he writes, quote, Therefore we flee the world and find a refuge in these institutes devoted to the God of virtue, end quote. Homily number 40. The monk who flees to these holy... Frontisterion does not do it in order to lead a carefree and indifferent life, but in order to learn how he can be united with God. The true monk is, quote, one who loves to be with God, end quote, from triad number one. He takes refuge in these holy places in order to make his way from the image to the likeness. He calls them holy sanctuaries, that is to say, holy enclosures, holy sheepfolds. Quote, we are surrounded by these holy enclosures, end quote, from homily number 40. In one of his homilies to the monks on the subject of the entrance of the Most Holy Mother of God, he refers to them by the following phrases, quote, forward then army of God, holy theater, chorus, harmonized by the heavenly spirit, end quote. Homily 53. In another homily, he calls the holy monasteries, Holy Sacred Places. B. Monks and Those in the World While the Christian life, the attaining of communion with God, 
is common to all men, yet as the divine Gregory teaches, there is a difference between the anchorite, those separated from the world, and the man in the world as to his manner of living. In speaking of dispassion, that it does not consist in mortifying the passionate part of the soul, but rather transforming it, he says that those who have come out of the world have more time to acquire communion with God with an unclouded noose, since they will free it from the refuse of the evil passions and thus arrive at real love. Those living in the world use the things of the world, but they force themselves to do it in conformity with Christ's commandments. So there is this difference in their way of life. Those who have come out of the world abandon everything in order to arrive at love through purity of their noose, while those living in the world arrive at love through keeping Christ's commandments, using all the material goods of the world ascetically. C. Two categories of nuns. In a homily of St. Gregory, we find an interesting detail, which shows the universality, the Catholicity of the monastic life. He refers to two categories of nuns. First, to those women who choose the monastic life from the beginning, and second, to those who came from married life to a common life in chastity. In both cases, the essential precondition is that they desire to live in repentance, which is the basis of monasticism. He writes incisively, quote, The virgins and those who have promised themselves to the monastic life and those of you who have done well to come back from marriage to a common life in chastity, and in general all you who through a longing for repentance have chosen to live in community. End of quote from homily number 42. This passage shows a long tradition of the church, according to which even married women are accepted into the monastic way of life, either after the death of their husband or by common consent. To be sure, this must be done with great care so as not to create other problems. In any case, what St. Gregory says is important, that those who have come back from marriage are coming back, quote, into living a common life in chastity. Thus, they too can acquire spiritual chastity. The term spiritual chastity can create some doubts and hesitations. In a conference, someone said to me that the term spiritual chastity is not found in the fathers, but that we find the term chastity of soul. And it is true that there are many texts in which the term chastity of soul is used, but we know that no chastity can be considered right without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the true chastity of soul is and is called spiritual. Moreover, the epistles of the Holy Apostle Paul speak of the natural man, which is the man of the flesh, and of the spiritual man, which is the man who partakes of the Holy Spirit. Thus, since chastity of soul comes only by the energy of the Holy Spirit, that is why it is called spiritual chastity. It is significant that when he refers to the nuns who have chosen the monastic life from the start and to those who became nuns after coming out of the married life, St. Gregory exhorts them to live in prayer, compunction, and so forth, so as to be, quote, holy and chaste in both body and soul, in both their senses and their minds, and in everything showing themselves to be spiritual and chaste in both thought 
and community life. Thus, the thought and community life of the true nuns is characterized as both spiritual and chaste. Universal chastity of body and soul is a work of the Holy Spirit and is therefore a spiritual gift. D. Monks and Education One of the topics which occupied St. Gregory Palamas in his dialogue with Barlam was that of the two wisdoms, the two educations, and the two knowledges. He said that there is godly education on the one hand and worldly education on the other. This distinction arises because Barlam maintained that the philosophers were higher than the prophets and that the monks should learn human wisdom and knowledge. Developing this theme, St. Gregory said that we do not hinder those who have not chosen the monastic life from learning worldly education, but still we do not advise anyone to devote himself entirely to it. And this is because it can teach no one anything sure about God. So we forbid anyone to expect any precise information about divine things from outward education. From this, it is clear that the monks are acquiring divine wisdom throughout their life. The knowledge of God is not a fruit of rational occupations, but a revelation of God himself. The monks should not expect anything from outward education, particularly not from philosophy. If before becoming a monk, anyone wishes to take it up and inform himself about it, it is not forbidden, but certainly it should not be made an absolute and therefore deified. E. Different Types and Methods of Asceticism In the works of St. Gregory Palamas, we find that there are many ways of living the monastic life. In fact, we see this even today on the Holy Mountain. There are Cenobitic monks who live in the Holy Monasteries and practice obedience and the common life. There are Skeeti monks who live in the Skeets, in communities, there are hermits who live alone in inaccessible areas in what they call the desert. All are struggling to do the will of God, but each in a different way. Among these modes of living, there are other forms as well, such as living in a type of hermitage called a kathisma, living in a kelion and cells as keliots, and so forth. St. Gregory says that the monks who imitate the worthy forerunner renounce the world, and some of them have dwelt in the desert and attracted to it many from later generations. And others, quote, trained themselves within the walls of holy enclosures and held spiritual gatherings in them. Homily 40. Thus there is a variety of forms of ascetic practice, but the method is the same. F. The purpose of withdrawal. Withdrawal from the world is not out of self-love or of being timid, about taking up worldly responsibilities, but from a holy desire for a heart purified of passions. Men withdraw from the world in order to remove themselves from what incites the passions. For through that comes the death which separates them from God. Death enters through the doors in us, that is to say, the passions. It was through these doors that Adam also died. Eve in paradise Quote, saw, suffered passion, ate, died, attracted the man, shared with him the tasting and the fall. 
The monks try to avoid that death which comes from all the passions and allurements which exist in the world. St. Gregory teaches that if a monk has property which he has brought from the world or has acquired it in the monastery, he actually never withdraws from the world. And indeed, St. Gregory maintains that even if that monk is still living on the holy mountain, in the monasteries, which represent the heavenly realm, he is in fact defiling the place. Homily 40. These words of the saint are dreadful to hear. When the Hagiarite's life is not in keeping with the evangelical and monastic life, he defiles the holy mountain. He himself practically loses the possibility of becoming a saint. So it is not a matter of living in a place, but rather of a way of life. G. The monastic way of life. St. Gregory Palamas attaches great importance to the way of the monastic life. It is not enough to live in the monasteries, but one must live in the way of the Holy Fathers. Monastery resembles the first paradise where Adam and Eve dwelt. Just as there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil there, and just as there was the cunning devil, it is the same now in the monasteries. So the monks are in great danger of falling, even within their holy walls. Therefore, constant readiness, nipsis, and attention are needed. The aspiration of the monk is to make the inner man a monk. An outward sojourn in a holy place is not enough, but what is needed is an effort to live monastically inwardly. The saint asks, quote, How could the inner man become a monk if he did not first overcome the acquired world and all human learning? This is symbolized by the tonsure, cutting the hair of the head. Likewise, St. Gregory has preserved information that is still true even today among ascetic fathers who are wholly devoted to God. Some fathers even do not allow baths and forbid receiving help from medical science in cases of illness. Of course, they do this not out of scorn for medical science, but out of deep faith in God. Therefore, they do not consider outrageous those monks who do not attain such a height of faith as to rest their cure upon God alone. Of course, this will have to be done with discrimination and humility. It is necessary for the monk to have spiritual guidance because it is possible that he will be led astray by the tempting devil. An essential prerequisite for the monk in this holy struggle, especially for the novice, is that he has a spiritual father to guide him on his spiritual journey. He cites the example of Nikiforos, the solitary, who practiced holy Hezekiah. He chose the strictest life when he came to the holy mountain. He began his struggle by doing obedience to the most distinguished of the fathers. And after having given them the experience of this of his humility for a very long time, he received from them, quote, the experience of the art of arts, that is to say of stillness, and became a leader of those struggling in the world of the mind to battle against the spirits of cunning, end quote. As a result, since he saw that the novices could not even moderately support the unsteadiness of their noose, he also proposed a special method, which is the psychotechnical method. Footnote, see triad 2.2. As a result, since he saw that the novices could not even moderately support, he, ha he provided this method. 
The monastic life, as we said in the beginning, is an apostolic way of life. The asceticism in the monasteries is like the asceticism in the life of the early Christians. In Jerusalem, the Christians, quote, were continually in the temple, persevering in prayer and entreaty. In this way, those early Christians were clarifying beforehand and actually describing this truly monastic, heavenly, and most holy life. The monks do this. They try, by their way of living, to remove all distraction and fantasy from their lives. And through the unifying commandments to rise to the unique theosophy, which is higher than any philosophy. This is the all-holy life in the way of the monks. They do nothing else but follow the life of the apostolic men. The method, as it is described in many places by St. Gregory, is the method which the true monks still follow today. The lover of union with God enters the sanctuary of holy stillness when he withdraws from the blameworthy life. This means that when he first liberates his soul from every bond, he then joins his noose to God with unceasing prayer, and in this way his noose enters his heart and from there finds the ineffable path to heaven and is granted the divine and holy vision of God in the light. We shall analyze this liberation and ecstasy of the noose in other places. Here we simply point out the basis of the monastic life, which is liberation and illumination of the noose. This struggle is common to monks and nuns. There are not separate commandments for men and women. Therefore, in one of his homily, he enjoins the nuns to follow the same manner of life in order to live in the truly evangelical way. The noose should be turned to God alone. Quote from Triad 3. Look to God alone. Make him your only delight. Rejoicing in hope, patient in affliction, obedient to those in charge, serving one another, seeing to the peace among you, always being devoted to attention and prayer and compunction of soul, to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, being holy and chaste in body and soul, in all your senses and all your mind, and manifesting what is spiritual and chaste with all your mind and conduct. End quote. H. Monks and Reading The anti-Hesychists accused the Hesychist fathers of advising the monks quote, to give up all reading of Holy Scripture as wrong and devote themselves to prayer alone. In answering this accusation, St. Gregory Palamas said that this advice is given to novices. To be sure, there are many fathers, such as St. Diodocus of Fotiki, the great Philemon, St. Nilos, St. John of the Ladder, who did advise novices, quote, to keep silence from long reading and give their attention to prayer of a single phrase until they acquire the habit of praying unceasingly, even if their body was doing something else. However, this does not mean that they regarded reading scriptures as useless and wrong. Therefore, the novices chiefly devoted themselves to prayer in order to fasten their noose to God without overlooking the scriptures. Thus, when they acquired an illuminated noose, they could better understand the spirit of the scriptures, the deepest sense of the scriptural passages, because they had spiritual kinship then with the apostles and the evangelists. I. Moving of monks in the world. We have said before that St. Gregory called the monasteries the institutes devoted to God. 
because the monks in them are instructed in godly wisdom and come to possess knowledge of God. In one of his homilies on the passage about the curing of the man possessed, which he apparently spoke in the temple of St. Demetrios, as it seems from the sentence, quote, let us too approach well and rightly the spring of aromatic oils which God has granted us and is poured forth, as you see, by the reliquary from the body of our native martyr for Christ. He was directing his words to the monks who were leaving the institutes devoted to God and running to the cities. It seems that St. Gregory saw many monks coming into Thessaloniki without a reason, putting themselves to the test of various temptations. The saint advises, But let us also, especially the monks, Flee from association and life with the swine in the wilds. And he goes on to say, What is the use of your fleeing the world once for all and seeking out the institutes devoted to God as your refuge and then going out of them back and forth into the world every day? How, tell me, when you go around in marketplaces, will you escape the fomenting of passions which, through which comes the death of the soul that separates man from God? End quote homily number 50. The monks who left the world chose the path of purity of the senses, purity of reason, and purity of imagination. Thus, there are many dangers in uselessly going out of the monastery, and especially in moving about every day without the blessing of the Yerondo, without the blessing of the abbot. This is natural because, as the discerning spiritual fathers know, when a monk lives for a time in purity of the senses and before he is yet confirmed in this life, he is subject to temptations. Prayer, and especially inner prayer of the heart, doing away with thoughts and fantasies, makes the heart of man sensitive. And this can be an occasion for falling into sentimental states, which are occasions of great temptation. That is why great care is needed, and especially blessings from the spiritual father, the abbot, for these movements outside the monastery. J. Imitation of the Holy Forerunner. In his homilies, St. Gregory Palamas often emphasizes the truth that the monastic way of life is an imitation of the life of the Holy Forerunner, the Baptist of Christ. In his homily on the Holy Forerunner, he says that the fathers who fled to the wilderness did it in imitation of John the Baptist. Quote, Therefore, the fathers, imitating the forerunner of grace, renounced the world and left the company of those near them either to live in the desert or in holy-walled enclosures, end quote. Homily number 40. In the same homily, he advises the monks to strive to imitate the life of the forerunner, since the monk's life approaches in some way the solitary desert of the forerunner. He writes, Let us hasten as best we can to imitate the forerunner of grace, and most of all, those of us who have a monastic life whose life is secluded from the customs and things of the world and in some way approaches the solitary desert life of the prophet and Baptist. He says particularly that the forerunner, since he foresaw, prophet that he was, that the monks would someday be able to imitate him in some measure, let his head be cut off, suffering not out of godliness but out of virtue, so that the monks might be ready to stand up against sin unto death, knowing that he who puts the passions to flight through virtue will receive a martyr's crown. Homily 40. And here, too, we see the element of martyrdom in the life of the monks.
for conclusion. In conclusion, we can say that monasticism is not alien to the church. It is not a life which came in much later, but it is the prophetic, apostolic, and martyr's life. Every true monk who belongs to the holy tradition of the church is at the same time a prophet, an apostle, and a martyr of Christ, who lives the life of Christ, gives witness of the new life which Christ brought into the world and is ready to endure martyrdom for the glory of Christ. Moreover, the true monk bears witness to the struggle for purity of heart and soul and to the fight against the demons. The monastery is the sacred places, the institutes of virtue in which the monks practice holy hezekiah, which is the real road to participation in the deifying energy of God. Thus the monks preserve the authentic life of man, his natural journey and life, but also they offer true knowledge of God to the people. In speaking of monasticism, St. Gregory Palamas places it within the orthodox theological framework. Orthodox monasticism is not enclosed within an abstract ascetic practice, nor in a rational knowledge about God, but it breathes real theology. It is the theological life and conduct par excellence. And this is seen from the fact that the whole monastic life, as also St. Gregory Palamas expresses it, answers the basic questions. What is God? What is natural man? To what did man come through the fall? What sort of ruin did he suffer? Where should he be led? And how will he be cured in order to attain union with God, which is the deepest purpose of his existence? The theology of Orthodox monasticism seems to have answers to these questions. The Orthodox monk is intensely occupied with this problem. Therefore, he is authentic. We see this also in the contemporary Athenite monks. Some of them may be illiterate and uneducated in the way of the world, but as they have the Holy Spirit, they are apostles of Jesus Christ. As St. Gregory the Theologian says, the apostles do not the theologize in an Aristotelian way, that is to say, by thinking, by imagination and logic, but as fishermen with the experience of Pentecost. So also contemporary Hagiorite monks who are in the Orthodox ecclesiastical tradition are prophets, apostles, and martyrs of Jesus Christ. Since they are prophets and apostles, they bear witness to the life which the church has. That is why they are a light to the men of the world, a spiritual boundary mark, pointers of the way to spiritual perfection. <laughs>